Good morning. I consider it such a privilege, honor to have been asked to uh, preach this morning. Many of you are praying for me. Uh, you must have heard from Julie that you needed to be praying for me. Or maybe you've listened to my sermons online, so you know that you need to be praying for me. The scripture passage this morning uh, picks up in uh, the epistle of 1 John at 1 John chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 11, and then reading through verse 18. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. It is our desire, Heavenly Father, uh, to be fed by your word. Remind us every day the words of Deuteronomy quoted by Jesus. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Father, we confess with full recognition that the Holy Scriptures are your word, breathed out by you, written down so that through the patience and endurance of the scriptures we might have hope. We pray for that today. We ask that your Holy Spirit would take your word and apply it to us, in us, and changing us by it so that we might be conformed more closely to the image of Christ so that we might live out our purpose in this life and in this world, that we might be salt, the very salt of the earth, that we might be light, light to this world that dwells in the deep darkness of sin. We are grateful to know that he who dwells in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so in confidence, we come to you this morning to be fed, to be led and guided, to live for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Julie and I are very happy to be out of California and to be in the promised land of North Carolina. 
for all sorts of reasons that I don't really need to go into. (laughs) But there's something that I encountered in Bakersfield, California, that made an indelible impression upon me. It was about 11 years ago that we changed our shopping, grocery shopping habits. We began to go to this one place, and primarily this one place. The prices were good, but the people were fantastic. Whether it was the cashiers or those working on the floors who were stocking and restocking the shelves, or one of those men or women who were handing out the food samples. We found a level of customer service unparalleled in any commercial business we had ever involved ourselves with. Workers would look at you when you walked into the store. They would speak to you, they would greet you, and they would quickly ask if you needed any help. If you did, they would personally leave whatever they were doing and walk with you to the part of the store where you needed some guidance to find that hatched chili salsa that was there in front of you, but somehow you kept missing as you were looking for it. But here is the amazing thing. This particular grocery store is a nationwide chain. We shopped the same store in San Diego several times. Exactly the same experience. We shopped this store in St. Louis on more than one occasion. Exactly the same experience. We shopped this store in Columbus, Ohio. The same kind of experience with the people. We shopped this store just last weekend in Maryland, Annapolis, Maryland. I went there twice. Same exact experience. We have shopped that store here in Cary, North Carolina. Two different stores. The same experience. This is why one of the search factors that Julie and I would bring before the Lord as we were praying about where we're supposed to move next out of California, uh, we, we prayed like this, God, please lead us to the right city. Please give us a great church, which he has. And please make it possible for us to still shop at Trader Joe's. (laughs) Now, if that's not been your experience at Trader Joe's, what can I say? (laughs) In any case, the point is this. In our experience, Trader Joe's across this country has demonstrated a highly consistent brand of consummate customer service. It sets them apart from nearly every other grocery store or food service chain that I've ever known. It's a remarkable performance. Now, I wish as a Christian, as one who loves the bride of Jesus, the body of Christ, that I could say the same thing about the church. But honestly, we can't. But even in the New Testament, we find the Apostle Paul in his letters describing all manner of problems, all manner of faults, all manner of issues and divisions arising from within the church, which made the bride of Christ neither particularly pretty nor particularly pure. 
and the Apostle John. Likewise, he's, he's dealing with things in the churches across Asia Minor where they are fighting serious problems that are arising from within, which he characterizes as the spirit of Antichrist. And here in this section, we pick up a continuation of John's argument with verse 10 being sort of the key connector between what has come before and the passage we're looking at this morning. Where John says there that anyone who does not practice righteousness nor loves his brother is not a child of God, but rather is a child of the devil. John is giving what is typical for John in his writings, a very black and white, sharp, either-or kind of contrast. He says, either we are God's child or the devil's. Either we have a divine parentage or one that is diabolical. We have a pedigree that is heavenly or hellish. Because in the midst of many antichrists who have infiltrated the church, bringing about false teachings about who Christ actually is and a false vision of the Christian life, John is continuing to declare as clearly as possible who a true Christian is. Some 40 years ago, I had the privilege of sitting under Dr. J.I. Packer. Not literally, that's a manner of speech, you know, where he's teaching and you're, you're under the word of God. And he did this amazing job of, of expounding over five nights the epistle of 1 John. And I, I took extensive notes. And within those notes, I found one of the things that Dr. Packer said with, with great clarity. He said, John says that the Christian, every Christian, is defined by three things. He's defined by his beliefs that he actually knows the living God through Christ in a personal way. He's defined by his blessings, which is actual fellowship with the living God. And he's defined by his behavior that he truly and genuinely and actually loves the brothers. And that's where we are when we come to verse 11. The chief behavioral characteristic of the Christian is this. We should love one another. And that is the main focus of this section. Uh, what it is to be a true Christian in terms of those three things. Our beliefs, our blessings, our behavior. Three things that are inseparable of which the third is what John is concerned about here. Our behavior as Christians, that we love one another. Now, in making this point, the Apostle John is going to refer to diametrically opposite examples. First of all, he's going to refer to, to Cain, who is the slayer of his brother. Then secondly, he's going to refer to Christ, who is the Savior of us all. So in the first, we're looking at verses 12 through 15. We have the negative example of Cain laid out before us. Cain, the slayer of his brother. 
The apostle presents Cain as a kind of model of hate, but clearly as a prototype of the world. Look at verse 12. Cain. John says he belonged to the evil one. Now, Cain's story is very instructional, so let's look into it just a little bit. Cain is the very first human being who's born into this world. Adam and Eve, directly created by God. Therefore, in Cain, we have the first example of how the sin of our first parents, how their fall from a perfect relationship with God immediately affects the continuation of the human race. We see that Cain was, as John tells us, of the evil one. This means that Cain was not born connected to God. He was not born into a relationship with God. Consequently, he was born outside of the life of God, separate from the life of God, which means that Cain was born spiritually dead. And to be separate from God, to be spiritually dead, is the reality of what it means to belong to the evil one. Cain, the firstborn of Adam and Eve, was a son of the devil. In Cain, we see the beginning of the diabolical pedigree that characterizes fallen humanity. Secondly, again verse 12, Cain was the first murderer. This is the Bible's strongest evidence that the fall of the human race in Adam and Eve was not gradual. It did not happen over a period of time. It did not take generations to become as bad as it was going to become. No. The very first human being born into this world, into a fallen condition, becomes the first murderer. Murder, we know, ranks as the most heinous of crimes and sins against our fellow human beings. Because in murder, we attack and destroy that which is created in the image of God. But Cain also committed one of the worst forms of murder, fratricide, the murder of his brother, the murder of someone who was a close, close relative. And even all of that was made worse by the fact that Cain was religiously motivated. He killed Abel because God judged his brother's offering as righteous. God judged his own as unacceptable and evil. In all of this, Cain is being set forth as the strongest negative background to the meaning and character of true love. And then we go on to verse 13. It's a kind of conclusion that we should draw from what John has just said. And so we should supply a therefore at the beginning of verse 13. We should say, therefore, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Or to paraphrase, paraphrase and to sum up what John is saying here, we could put it this way. 
Cain belonged to the evil one. The world belongs to the evil one. Therefore, the world is like Cain, who hated and murdered his brother. Therefore, do not be surprised if the world hates you. In fact, to the contrary, we ought to be surprised when the world treats us as Christians with a certain kind of righteousness and a certain kind of kindliness. For this reason, when believers are treated well by the world, this is actually a disguise of the world's true character. Let me explain that. Let's consider the the difference between a believer and a non-believer. The true believer is supposed to live righteously, supposed to live with moral consistency, and is supposed to always live without deception and deceptiveness. But someone of the world can live and does live both ways. They can live unrighteously, which we should expect from someone who's fallen, but they might also appear to live righteously. Here's why. It is of the very nature of evil to do evil deeds. It is of the very nature of evil to do deeds which appear to be good. The deepest kind of evil is deception. Satan deceived Eve. Jesus said he has been a liar from the beginning. The apostle Paul said concerning those that he had to address and deal with, they're false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. From 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Evil people, evil people go to very great pains to pass themselves off as good. Just as an aside, part of our pastoral experience in California for 18 years was working with ex-offenders. Ex-offenders so often have a very, very high view of themselves, even though they know they have done deeds that put them in prison. I remember talking to a prison psychologist about this. He said on Routine test of self-esteem. Criminals score higher than anyone else. People are not in prison because they have low self-esteem. People are in prison because they esteem themselves above the law. And they will claim that they are good. Coming back to Cain and his deceit to his own family, to his own brother, he appeared to be one who sought to worship God. 
But his religiously motivated murder demonstrates that Cain was truly a follower of the evil one. So be surprised. Be wise. Be careful when the world speaks well of the church and of Christians and of believers. Do not be surprised when the world hates the church, hates Christians, and hates believers. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter, and utter, utter all kinds of evil because of you, against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, because of John's strict, either-or, dichotomous, black-and-white kind of thinking, he presents all these things in a point-counterpoint kind of manner. So he moves from what is wrong with Cain and the world to what should be right about Christians. Verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. John is saying that one of the chief indicators that we are genuine followers of Christ and therefore we've passed out of death into life is that we love our fellow Christians. For John told his own disciples, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Always remember that our love for the brothers in Christ, this behavior validates our beliefs that we truly know God and it validates our blessings that we have true spiritual rebirth, that we pass out of death into life. Now, by implication, hateful, mean-spirited people have a very questionable relationship with God. The last half of verses 14 and 15 indicate from what John says that if someone professes to be a Christian yet hates and continues to hate a fellow Christian, then that person hasn't yet passed from death to life. Whoever does not love abides in death, John says. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, there's no easy way to soften what John says. Hating others, particularly fellow Christians, is inconsistent with any claim on our part to know God in a personal and saving way. Now, John states here something that Jesus himself taught in the Sermon on the Mount, the attitude of hatred toward a brother violates the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Hatred is murder in the heart.
and as John says, murderers do not have eternal life. Now, to be fair of all of us and to be fair to Scripture, let's balance Scripture with Scripture. It's unrepentant murderers who do not have eternal life. King David was a murderer, but repentant afterwards. And the Apostle Paul, as Saul, was a persecutor and murderer of Christians, but repented of that life. Clear repentance. That someone who hates, who hates without repentance, who continues in hating his brother, is a murderer in his heart and would appear not to have eternal life. Now, I am not indicating here that you and I should be looking around to see if we can find so-called Christians who actually hate other Christians. No, I speak from personal experience as to how John's teaching here is a spiritual gut check. If you have been betrayed by people, people you have loved and trusted, if you have been hurt deeply by unfair actions and attitudes and accusations of others who are Christians, then the temptation to hate can be very, very strong. And the struggle to forgive and to repent of hatred can be such a fierce battle. But we must, through the work of Christ in us, grounded in the work of Christ for us, return to love. No matter who or what or in what manner, we have been hurt and betrayed by those who were Christians. Because the message from Christ that we have had from the beginning is that we should love one another. Now John here moves on into the positive definition of love, the definition that we find in verses 16, 17, and 18 that provides the contrast to Cain and the world and is essentially about Christ. And so here we see Christ is the Savior of us all. And John presents Christ as the model of love and then the pattern for the church. So verse 16. Love must be defined in the way that Christ defined it. Jesus said, John said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, I want to begin here at this point by saying something about definitions. This is where the, the, the school teacher inside of me wants to emerge. We are all familiar with verbal definitions, Defining a word by other words. We find love defined this way in the New Testament. We find it preeminently in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what we call the love chapter, where Paul defines love 
in, in terms of other words. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not rude, it's not envy. All those 15 or so characteristics that we find love described as. We understand that to be a verbal definition. And we use verbal definitions all the time. John isn't giving us a verbal definition here. He's giving us another kind of definition. We call this an ostensive definition. It's a fancy word. It simply means defining something by pointing to it as a concrete example of what we mean. And we can do this with things like books and tables and flowers. But it's very difficult to to define a kind of an abstract concept like God in an ostensive fashion. How do you point to God and say this is God? In fact, the second commandment in the Ten Commandments specifically prohibits us ever trying to define God ostensively. Uh, You shall not make unto yourself any graven image of any likeness of things that are in heaven above or the earth below or the waters below the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them, for I, your God, am a jealous God. God is vehemently opposed to us trying to define God, pointing to God in some kind of way and saying, this is God. However, in the incarnation, Jesus Christ is the ostensive definition of God. Paul the Apostle says in Colossians 1, verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God. And John said to his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. What we're never allowed to do with anything created, God himself did by virtue of the incarnation of Christ coming into this world. When we see Jesus, we have seen the eternal living God. In a similar manner, Jesus giving his life for us is the ostensive definition of love. It's the ultimate example. It's the most defining demonstration of the nature of true love. It is the action of the creator laying down his life for us, for his creatures who are themselves unworthy of this greatest of all sacrifice. And the right definition of love is absolutely essential for what we are called to do. Because John reminds us, this is our calling. This behavior is our calling. That we would love our fellow brothers. And ultimately, it's a definitive part of what defines our relationship with God. That we who are brothers of Jesus Christ would love one another is all about the willingness and the actual behavior of laying down our lives for one another. 
And so John goes on in verse 17 to make this practical point with a rhetorical question. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Real love will see the need and then demonstrate active, actionable compassion. And likewise then, verse 18, genuine love will be sincerely practice. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is ultimately not a matter of words, nor a matter of emotions and feelings. Love is ultimately a matter of deeds and actions and behavior. True and sincere love must be practiced. This demonstrates the genuineness of our faith that we truly know God. Many of you will recognize the name Elie Wiesel. He's the renowned Jewish theologian and prolific author, human rights campaigner, who survived both Auschwitz and Buchenwald, the Nazi concentration camps. And then he went on to become a journalist, a professor, humanitarian, and Nobel Peace Prize recipient. Led a most remarkable life. In the first volume of his memoirs, which were put out around 2016, All Rivers Run to the Sea, he tells of his family who were living in Hungary during those dark days of World War II. His family was already placed into a Jewish ghetto confined there by the Nazis, waiting for the time when the Nazis would actually come and take them to Auschwitz. During that time of waiting, Wiesel writes of a peasant woman by the name of Maria. Maria was almost like a member of their family, and he says she was a Christian. During the early years of the war, she continually visited them, but eventually the non-Jews were no longer allowed to come into the Jewish ghetto areas. But that didn't deter Maria. She found her way through the barbed wire. She came anyway to bring the Wiesel's fruit, vegetables, and cheese. One day she came knocking upon their door. She told them she had a cabin up in the woods, up in the hills. She wanted to take the children, including Ellie, to hide them there before the Nazis came. But the Wiesel family, after much debate, chose to stay together, although they were deeply moved by her gesture. So Ellie wrote these words of her. Dear Maria, if other Christians had acted like her, the trains rolling toward the unknown would have been less crowded. If priests and pastors had raised their voices, if the Vatican had broken its silence, the enemy's hand would not have been so free. But most thought only of themselves. A Jewish home was barely emptied of its inhabitants before they descended like vultures. 
He goes on to say, I think of Maria often with affection and gratitude and with wonder as well. This simple, uneducated woman stood taller than the city's intellectuals, dignitaries, and clergy. My father had many acquaintances and even friends in the Christian community. Not one of them showed the strength of character of this peasant woman. Of what value was their faith, their education, their social position, if it did not arouse love? It was a simple and devout Christian woman who saved the town's honor. We see in Maria's actions and behavior the ostensive definition of love. Seeing the Wiesel family in great need and doing all she could to love in deed and in truth. Like her Savior, willing to lay down her life for others and showing in her behavior the truth that she herself had passed out of death into the life that only God can give, showing by her life and love that she was truly a child of God. Now, I conclude by taking us back to Trader Joe's again. For the sake of attracting and keeping loyal customers, for the sake of remaining competitive in the grocery business, Trader Joe's trains every employee to make every customer feel wanted and welcomed, valued and important, and frankly, I love that feeling. Julie will send me to Trader Joe's and then later say, I forgot something, will you go again? Of course I'll go again. It's maybe the only time during the day I feel appreciated. I will get the help. <laughs> I will get the attention. I will be personally guided to whatever I need in the store. And when I express my thanks for being helped, I'll be given this great smile, a, a, a glad-to-help reply. But this passage in 1 John is so much deeper than a money-based motivation to treat people right. The calling is so much higher. It's for the sake of Christ, the Savior of us all, who came to destroy the works of the devil, who came as the propitiation for our sins, who came to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And therefore, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Amen. God and Father, may these words, your words, be made so very, very true in our lives. To the glory of the name of Christ, amen.